Surprise! We're back! <laughs> surprise, surprise, yes. It has been a long time, Kirsten. It's, it's been a little while, and uh, thanks to this year, 2020, being so uh, online and a bit chaotic, we are actually back to recording online again, thanks to a recent outbreak in Sydney, unfortunately. Uh, yes, I was really hoping that we were going to do this together, but uh, that is the reality. We really wanted to have this, uh, at least this special episode, for telling you some few things during the year. And uh, also, we are very excited about something that is going to happen in just three days, although let's see if we can see it or not. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed, clouds move away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Angel Lopez Sanchez. And I'm Kirsten Banks. And, and we, we are, are the, the scientists. scientists. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode N, where N is a, a real number, a real integer that Angel's going to tell us now, because I've completely forgotten what episode we're up to. For this special case, N is equal to 39. 39? There so it go. is our 39 episode. I'm tempted to say that that will be the first episode of the fourth season. I think so. <laughs> I think it'll have to be. <laughs> because we have had a large, big break because of the circumstances and uh, craziness of life, craziness of work and other commitments. Kirsten can tell us many things about how busy she has been regarding observing at the Anglo-Australian Telescope and diving quickly into the PhD thesis and also some few other events that she has been around and writing and tic-tac. <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite the sweet treat, but uh, tic-tac. Tic-tac, sorry. <laughs> tic-tac is the other kind. The kind, the other kind. <laughs> okay, yes. Oh, now I'm getting completely red in my face. <laughs> yes, I've been doing lots of TikTok this year since uh, since we've all kind of been told to stay at home and all public events have been cancelled or either moved online. A lot of our SciComm has been just completely scrapped this year, and I, I was craving something more consistent to practice my SciComm and challenge myself. So I joined TikTok and. Uh, it's been going pretty well. We've actually had a little bit of, uh, of our episode on TikTok as well for a previous yeah. episode earlier this year. Yeah, in our latest episode, in episode 38, we actually were talking a bit about your TikTok. Mm. Uh, you were introducing us about that and, and they're great. So you have been improving a lot. I mean, they were very good from the beginning, but right now you are able to synthesize uh, a big amount of knowledge in only... Half a minute, half a minute, I mean the minute. That Pretty is. much half a minute. Yep. I've been trying to get them shorter and shorter and shorter because uh, as I've learned over the last couple of months, people's attention span is very short. And so longer videos up to 60 seconds actually don't perform as well, which is quite interesting. Perhaps I should learn about doing that because I also prepare a video. But that was a long, long time ago. That was I'm talking <laughs> about June 
when I released a 15 minutes video about how we obtain the beautiful color image in, in astronomy and explaining a bit more about the emission lines of the nebula and the difference between the permitted line and the forbidden lines with the brackets. The famous oxygen three brackets, please, <laughs> because it is a forbidden line, a collation seated line, and it has to have the, with the brackets because many amateur astronomers were not using that. And yes, so, so that was uh, a lot of fun. I have to confess that I prefer that kind of way of doing things. I prefer to be a bit more, uh, uh, let's see how I can say that, a bit more reflexive. So it's, mm. it's kind, perhaps it is something that is coming because of the age difference that is uh, for very young people like you, you like something that is short, immediate, direct. And I like a bit more, you know, development of what the problem was, how we attacked it and tried to solve it and what is the knowledge that we are getting now. And oh, definitely. I really want to get some few more of these videos coming eventually, hopefully even one during this break. Let's see how it goes. And those long videos are great because then you're able to digest a lot more knowledge and a lot more detail and you can be more rigorous in that. Whereas with the, the shorter ones, it's like, grab your attention for five seconds. Oh, cool. You've learned something new. Move on. <laughs> yeah, but still, they complement each other, I will say. They do. They definitely, definitely. do. And, and even long videos, they don't have to be necessarily, uh, you know, that you're watching something that is taking a lot of effort. Um, you can have a look, for example, to a couple of good friends, Dylan O'Donnell. He prepares amazing 10 minutes, usually 10 minutes video, sometimes very short videos too, but usually 10 minutes video about the observations that he is conducting from his very own observatory at home in Byron Bay. Although but lately he is complaining about everybody in the eastern coast in Australia about the excellent weather of La Nina, <laughs> <laughs> meaning clouds and thunderstorms. Lots of clouds and lots of rain. A lot of rain. So yeah, that is one of the things that we have been doing. Besides also being in charge of uh, students at the university, uh, trying to produce um, a bit more of research and papers, and now in particular as part of my job at the Australian Astronautical Optics at Macquarie University, I'm uh, much more involved into, in, in some few instrumentations projects for uh, instrument for large telescope, including the very large telescope in Chile, European Southern Observatory. And yeah, just preparing this kind of documentation, it is taking extra, extra time. Mm. So yes, we've been very, very busy over this past couple of months. But besides that, we have the commitment of trying to continue having a lot of fun recording this podcast. Let's go to try to do it. Although we cannot guarantee that we are going to be in the two weeks We'll, we'll do our best, we promise, because we love you guys and we love how, uh, how dedicated you all are as well to listening to our podcast and listening back and even binging our podcast. I've heard a couple of people have been binging the scientists, which is just awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. We will do that. What else I was going to say, some big news. I'm very excited about that. If you don't mind that I do a bit of extra publicity now that we have the chance. Of course. I have been awarded one of these uh, positions, scientists in residency at Sydney Observatory, a place that you know very well. Mm -hmm. And I'm the only scientist who is going to be doing that in 2021. And the plan is just to be there doing a bit of astrophotography. And That's so awesome, Angel. Yes, well, I'm very excited about that, about this uh, possibility. So I really wanted to share that with all of you. The news have been uh, released during this week. Our friend uh, Rami Mado, he's another 
of the people who have been selected for this program. Such a great group of people. Yes, yes, definitely. Good. Okay, I think it is enough of presentations and updates from us. Let's go to the real thing. And today we are going to change slightly the order of our episode. And we are going to start with what's up. Just since, you know, today was a surprise, we're going to switch it up and surprise you in the episode as well. So what's up first and how could we not? How could we not talk about this? There's going to be a great conjunction. Yay! Something that we have not been able to observe in a long, long time. That's right. And it will not happen again till uh, 2080. That's right. So let's explain what a great conjunction actually is. First, before explaining what a great conjunction is, let's talk about what a conjunction is. So a conjunction is when two planets in the night sky have the same right ascension, which is kind of like your longitude on the Earth, but projected up into the sky in a way. So it's when two planets cross across each other in the night sky. But a great conjunction is when it happens between the gas giants, Jupiter mm. and Saturn. Exactly. And I like the way you said the right ascension, because someone can think also about well, what happened with the declination, because the position in the sky, you have the right ascension, which is equivalent to the longitude, mm -hmm. and the declination, which is equivalent to the latitude in on planet Earth, but in the celestial sphere. Well, the thing is that the planets are moving in uh, more or less in the same plane. That's right. More or less in the same plane. So more or they, less. So that means that they are going to have more or less the same declination if they have a particular right ascension. Mm -hmm but they're not always that close, are they? Exactly. And that is the other important point about this particular conjunction, the peak conjunction that is happening on the 21st of December 2020. That's right. So sometimes they're really close, like they are this year. And this year is really special because they're going to be really, really close, just six arc minutes away from each other in the sky, which is about a fifth the width of the full moon. Yeah. That's tiny. That will be very difficult to distinguish the two points of light for some people. Exactly. Some people will be able to, to resolve them. Some people will not be able to, to get the two points of light separated. Mm. The thing is that unfortunately that happens over the western southwestern horizon just after sunset. So yes. if you want to see that, you have to look in the evening twilight sky and trying to find a place that is relatively clear. You don't have any trees or buildings or mountains or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look into the, that direction in the southwest. And hopefully no clouds too. Yeah, well, I'm not going to start going there <laughs> because I'm, I'm already, I mean, still three days to go, but I'm giving up. So we are recording this on the 18th, Friday the 18th of uh, December. Yesterday, on the night of the 17th of December, they were still close because the conjunction, it is not something that happened for one day. It's, they are coming together. Mm -hmm. The moment of the closest approach, that, that is the 21st, and then they're still moving a bit apart. And yesterday, last night, the moon was also there. The very tiny crescent moon oh, was located in the same area. And I have already seen and retweeted some very nice photos. I really wanted to get a photo of that, mm. but no way. 
clouds here are not giving a chance. I have not used my amateur telescope, and that is something else that I could have told you at the beginning, but I have not been able to use my amateur telescope and using my amazing new camera and new system since early October. Oh, it's so sad. Yeah, it is sad. So yeah, our WhatsApp for, the, uh, for this episode will be just try, please, fight the clouds, find a good place to, to, to try to observe this, because that will not happen again till the 15th of March, 2080. That's right. They won't be that close again until 2080. Because an important thing to mention here is that a great conjunction actually does happen every 20 years or so, but they're mm-hmm. not always this close because their, their inclination of their orbits aren't exactly the same. Yeah. So they're not always going to be as close. So there is a lot of misinformation out there about this conjunction and how rare or not so rare it is. So the last time they were six arc minutes away from each other was 1623. So around the time of Galileo. And like Anhel said, the next one where they will be this close again, again, six arc minutes away from each other will be the 15th of March, 2080. But there will be another great conjunction in 2040. Yes, Wait, in, can I do my maths? Yes, yeah, no, no, 40 years, 20, 20 years later. <laughs> 2040, 2060. That's right. And then just moving into uh, 2080. And mm-hmm. um, just for giving you the, the all the numbers, the 20 years, actually it is around 19.6, but 20 is fair enough. Uh, it is just when you consider that Jupiter needs 11.9 years to go around the sun, Saturn needs 29.5 years, and if you add also the movement of the Earth on that, in the moment that uh, three of them are going to be aligned in that particular way, in the sense that the, the Earth is going to see Jupiter and Saturn very close together in the sky, it is the 19.6 year. So that is, as Kerstin said, one of these big conjunctions every 19.6, 20 years. Exactly. And the one on the 16th of July, 1623, that was a bit difficult to see because it was even closer to the sun than the the one that is happening this year. Mm. So that was difficult to see. Previously to that one was another on the 25th of August, 1563. But again, more or less the same distance, around the the seven minutes, the separation between the two planets. Again, not that much, but some people had moved this back to a very famous one that happened on the 4th of March, 1226, when they were two arc minutes, only two arc minutes, one third. Who? One third of the separation, that the, the closest separation that uh, Jupiter and Saturn are going to have here on the 21st of, of December, this uh, twenty. Whoa! That's crazy. That was actually the first reference that I saw in some few people talking about, oh, it's going to be as close as in, in the Middle Ages. And Middle Ages, that's happened every <laughs> 20 years, more or less, but with this close, not that much. Yeah, and, but you can even go even a bit further back in time because there are people who are connecting this to the repetition of the Christmas star. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That is something that uh, I'm not sure if we have talked a bit about this in the past. Uh, it is I don't an, think so. It is a topic that I love for Christmas, uh, particularly in the Spanish tradition uh, that we have the three wise kings 
uh, tradition, the three wise kings, uh, Melchor, Gaspar, Abastazar, the three magicians, astrologers, whatever, that in the Matthew Gospel, they uh, present and they travel from the east to Jerusalem and then to Berlin to find the Messiah, say the Messiah Christ, uh, when, when he was born. And it is a tradition that is said that there was something special happening in the sky, this star, the Belen star, the Christmas star, that guided the three astrologers from the east to, uh, to where the, uh, Mary and Joseph were with Christ just born in that mm. in that place so it is something that is quite um, a tradition in many of these countries yeah and it's gotten a lot of media attention oh. recently as well as yeah. soon as that christmas star um narrative came out like everyone's really excited about it and honestly i think it's really cool yeah, I, I, it's getting people thinking about the sky again that is good although sometimes it is also a bit misleading because first we don't know exactly if this kind of a special phenomenon happened mm. some people are really starting to consider that that was something that it was added to the gospel because in that time if you wanted to have something very special happening in, in the on the earth it have have to have a special thing happening in the sky Yes. And that was an explanation. But when astronomers, and that have been a discussion for many, many, many years and centuries, even Kepler thought uh, about this, um, tried to explain what the Christmas star was, mm -hmm. then it is when the things are starting to be interesting. Because the first thing that you have to know, it is exactly when Jesus was born. And surprise, surprise, Jesus was not born in the year zero because we don't have GR0, yes. or in the GR1 before our era. We know that at least he was born in the five before our era. Oh, okay. And we know that because of a combination of factors. One of the things is that, uh, remember that in those times, people were counting the years regarding the founding of Rome, oh. the foundation of Rome. In some moment, in I don't remember exactly the date, but it was in some moment around 300, 400, a monk, Dionysius Dexiwos, tried to count backwards all the Roman emperors till the birth of Christ for starting the chronology that we are using now, the Anno Domini, mm. AD, the, the our era. But we know that he at least committed two mistakes. One, not considering the zero. Yep. Because in Roman numbers, there is no there zero. There is no zero. There is no zero. And it's also the confusion with 1999 not being the last year of the 20th century or the last year of the millennium, being 2000. The same time that 2020 belongs to the, the, the 2010s. The, the 2010s. Take yep. it. Exactly. Exactly the same thing. So that is one year. And the other extra four years because he didn't take into consideration the four first years that the first emperor of the Roman Empire, Augustus, was ruling with his real name, Octavius. Oh. So those four years plus this one, we know that at least it has have to be the minus five, let's say it that way. And on top of that, we know that uh, Herodes, 
that it is also very famous in the Bible, in the gospel, with all the, uh, the, 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 the he, he's there with the, the, the three wise kings uh, trying to talk to him, the king of Judea in that time, trying to talk to him, oh, where is this the Messiah? Where is where is born? And that is also triggers uh, that um, Herodes killed all the babies that were younger than one year. That is also very famous in the in the tradition. We know that he died around minus four before our era because of a lunar eclipse that happened in that time. What? So there are many things that we can learn doing this kind of connection between history, astronomy, when they are related with this astronomical phenomenon. So what happens? If we try to go to the minus five, minus six, and try to find something special in the sky, the first thing that we can think about, a comet. For example, mm -hmm. and we have seen very beautiful images. For example, the famous Giotto painting with the three white skins, the adoration of the three white skins. That is a very famous painting. The reason why this Giotto spacecraft is called Giotto because of this painting that visited yeah. the Halley comet. But we know from the Chinese that in that time they were already observing the sky and writing down all the comets, and there was no bright comet. Not a nova. It couldn't be a supernova because it would have been very bright, and even mm -hmm. during daylight, daylight, for example. And for a bit longer, longer than a year, surely it would yeah, be bright as well. Sometimes even longer for the year. So the most accepted hypothesis about what the Belenda star could have been is a triple conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn that happened in the minus six. Right. And it is triple because of the retrograde movement, first Jupiter advances and overpassed Saturn. Mm -hmm. Then because of the retrograde movement, it went backward. And then it resumed its typical movement. So oh, yeah, in, of course, because it, it would go prograde, then retrograde, then prograde again. Yeah. Oh, and, so and that's, that's what it means by triple conjunction, not yeah, like three things. No, it is ah. that. That happened in only some few months. And on top of that, from Asia, from the, the Middle East, you would have seen that in the direction of the West, where mm -hmm. Jerusalem and Israel was located. Ah. So that is what Kepler, for example, was one of the first persons to suggest mm -hmm. that that could have been the Belen star. And ah. that is why it has been connected with this big conjunction. That's really cool. So a bit of history. I love this part of history and also the beginning of the calendar. But the calendar, we will leave that for another time. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, folks. Hopefully, you will... I, I, look, I, I still have hope that there won't be clouds in the afternoon, in the evening on the 21st. But um, that, that the hope is dwindling, considering that Sydney is just completely covered in clouds right now. So if you can see it, please take a photo for us. It doesn't matter if it's just a crappy phone photo, just snap it for us, send it to the scientists, send it to uh, Aunt Helen and myself and just let us let us live vicariously through you if it is cloudy where we are. And we will be very jealous, but we will be happy too for you to share that. Um, yes. Also, we have to say that uh, you can see that with your naked eye or try to, if you can, you can use some binoculars. If you are using mm -hmm. binoculars, you will see Jupiter and the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, probably nothing else. You use a telescope, 
then you will be able to see at the same time the two planets, the clouds of Jupiter, the satellites of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, and at least one or two of the brightest uh, satellites around Saturn, Titan particularly. Mm, that's what I'm hoping to see with my telescope, but uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> Finger crossed, let's see. And plus, yeah. they look so... Uh, honestly, in my time working at Sydney Observatory, the planets looked so much better during twilight because you don't have that stark contrast between the brightness of these planets and the darkness of space behind them. Mm-hmm. So they, they look just absolutely gorgeous during twilight hours. So yeah. please, clouds, go away! Because that is something interesting to say. Um, you can observe planets using a telescope even in daytime. Mm-hmm. If you know where to point your telescope. Yes. And being very careful if you are moving around the sun. Yes. Do not point your telescope at the sun, folks, unless you have very, very, very special solar equipment. Yes. Never do that. Okay. Uh, that is the WhatsApp for today. And, and that is, I really think that we can all enjoy that uh, big conjunction. If not, we have to wait till 2080. That's right. Yes, I might still be around. You might be, but I'm a bit <laughs> older than you. I don't know. That will be, I will be 104. Oh, you know, technology is going pretty well at the moment. <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> but for today's episode, we thought since, you know, this, this horrible year is ending, and while it's been a horrible year in general, it's actually been a really cool year for astronomy. So what we're going to do is we're going to share some of our favourite things, our favourite science releases, our favourite papers from this year, and just kind of have a a big squee about space and astronomy in 2020. Yeah, because, um, you know, and I, I, we have talked, Twitter we mainly, but saying, oh, pity that we are not doing this. Oh, what is happening? The craziness with the... Uh, uh, phosphane and Venus, we should have half a special episode about <laughs> all of that. Um, yeah, but at least let's go to try to summarize today uh, some few of the main astronomical discoveries that have been a lot. It, a lot had happened this A year. lot. There's a, been a lot. a lot. Would you like to start on, Hel? What's the first one you want to bring up? in this special episode. Well, for this, uh, I will say, and I will have love also to spend a full episode giving all the details. We have talked a bit about this, but there is plenty more to say. And I'm going to use the Nobel Prize in Physics 2020, that again was awarded to astronomers for uh, the (laughs) second consecutive year. In this case, it was awarded half to Roger Penrose for the discovery that black hole formation is a robust prediction of the general theory of relativity. In that sense, a little extra comment, that novel would have also been shared with Stephen Hawking if he would have been alive, because they were working very closely together, uh, Roger, Roger Penrose, who is a mathematician and, and theoretical physicist, but also very much black holes you know, connected with astronomy. Oh, yeah. But the other half is going one quarter each to Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Ghez, who uh, were the leaders of the two independent teams that have been uh, monitoring the stars orbiting the galactic center for nearly, nearly three decades. 
And wow. these observations, these observations have shown that there is an object there with a total mass of around four million times the mass of the sun uh, that can only be a supermassive black hole. It's confirmed. It is scientifically much, much more than confirmed. And, and it is just amazing to go and see these time-lapse movies of oh, the yeah. stars moving around that object that you don't see because it is not active at the moment. It's not doing mm. much. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> Count our blessings. <laughs> and, and also amazing how the orbits of the stars are just changing slightly and speeding up when it is going very close to, mm. to that unseen object. That is just uh, uh, not only general relativity, that we also need that, uh, but even with Newtonian laws, it is a third lot, uh, the third lot of Kepler. And mm -hmm. we, can, we can see that. And that is also very much connected with all the important knowledge, um, new discoveries that this year have brought regarding supermassive black holes and galaxies. And I will go a bit more in, in there later. But that was the, 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 at least the point that I wanted to make about one of the biggest news of the, of the year in astronomy. And I don't know if, you, uh, if others may have noticed this, listening to Angel explain uh, who the Nobel Prize was awarded to, but it was also awarded to the very first woman in astronomy. Sorry, yes. Oh, I was it's amazing. Sorry, I was going to say that, and then I jump into another thing, and I lost the, the, the thought. Yes, Andrea, I guess, she has been awesome living, and she's absolutely a, man, a magnificent uh, astronomer that she, she has been leading all this uh, all the project. And let me, let me say that properly right, because I just jumped into there. Andrea Guest is at the University of California, Los Angeles. They have been observing the Galactic Center using the TECEC, Mm -hmm. telescopes in Hawaii and the other group that it was led or it is led by uh, Brigham Gensel at the Max Planck Institute for Astroterrestrial Physics in Germany. Brigham Gensel he has been leading the group that have been using the very large telescope and the European Southern Observatory telescopes in Chile for doing exactly this. So they have been able to observe independently with different, not only telescopes, but instruments and sometimes even different techniques that they have been uh, slightly modifying during the years for getting a better view. In this time-lapse video, there is a moment in which when you start watching the beginning, the first few years, you see the stars that are very blur. Mm. And in some moment, they start to be very sharp. Yes. And that is because of the introduction of the adapted optics. In, in the observations, and now you have a much better resolution and much better detail of what is happening there and, and finding even more stars. Oh, but, yeah. But definitely, uh, she really deserves this uh, award and the Nobel Prize. And we are extremely happy that finally a woman in astronomy have been awarded this recognition and, and also in physics. And we hope that many more will come soon. 100%. Okay, now your turn. What is one of your best or favorite news of, about astronomy this year, Kirsten? Okay, one of my favorites, sticking with the uh, idea of black holes, is a LIGO gravitational wave event. Of course, LIGO is popping out gravitational wave events every single year, uh, multiple times every single year. It's fantastic. 
But uh, this one this year really changed the way we understand physics in a way. We're still trying to figure things out, but basically, earlier this year, it was announced that the gravitational wave GW190521, so it was observed in 2019 in May on the 21st, but it was released, the actual information and science was released earlier this year, that it was the biggest combination of black holes ever seen. It produced an intermediate mass black hole. So we've seen lots of black holes collide with LIGO, like I said, but they've been forming stellar mass black holes. So black holes that can be formed by stars collapsing at the end of their lives. Then we also have supermassive black holes that we mentioned earlier with, with the Nobel Prize just before. But then there's this gap between the supermassive black holes and the stellar mass black holes. That's why we have the intermediate mass black holes. And we've never seen one before until now. So we limited a little bit about the black holes that collided to form the gravitational wave event GW190521. One of those black holes was 66 times the mass of the sun, which is getting uncomfortably close to this too massive for a stellar mass black hole. But then you have the primary mass, which is even more massive at 85 times the mass of the sun, which is just unheard of. In fact, it is forbidden. And I found it very funny. I, I, this is definitely one of the things I made a TikTok about earlier this year. And I found it very funny when, it, when I said that this black hole formation was forbidden, lots of people come in in the comments saying, haha, Obviously, it's not forbidden because it happened. It's like, yeah, yes, yes. Forbidden based on our current understandings of stellar astrophysics. But the reason why this, these black holes are forbidden to have been formed by the single collapse of a star is because of pair instability. Is that right, Angel? Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I still don't quite understand pair instability so much, but basically, if you have too much mass there is too much energy in this supernova explosion to form a compact object afterwards. So just it, the star just gets absolutely obliterated. Yes, that is, that is correct. So there is a limit to the uh, mass of the remnant, in this case of the black hole, that uh, depending on the original mass of the star. Also, we have a limit to the largest mass that a star can have, which is another issue. Mm. And these two are also very much uh, in some way related. And that also evolves with time because the extra parameter of the metallicity, the amount of metals, the metals, you know, remember in astronomy, anything that is not hydrogen and helium, it is a metal, carbon exactly. and oxygen, oxygen, <laughs> it is a metal of the universe. When um, a star is uh, rich in metal, the evolution it is also a bit different and it is not possible to reach very high masses. That is why yes. we think that the very first stars in the universe were very massive, very, very large, and they, many of them exploded as big supernova at the beginning of the, of the time. And later on, because this uh, first uh, generation of stars polluted the interstellar medium, or the intergalactic medium, because in that time <laughs> it was a mix, let's say that way, <laughs> When you have new star formation coming from the ashes of this first generation of stars, they are already enriched 
in these yes. chemical elements, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, and so on. And then that will make that the stars that they're going to form are not going to be as massive as they were in the first generation. And that is what had happened since. So that is also why that uh, particular observation of the gravitational wave event was particularly interesting for the astrophysical community. That's right, because it could be a case of we need to completely rethink how stellar deaths occur. Or another theory, which I think it seems more likely with our current understanding, is that the the 66 mass black hole and a solar mass black hole and the 85 solar mass black hole are likely like Russian nesting dolls of black holes previously, as in the black holes that formed this bigger one that ends up being 142 times the mass of the sun also experienced mergers previously to make them more massive. And I think that there are many astrophysicists and cosmologists that strongly support much more this uh, second next scenario that being a very massive star that has exploded. Because we not it is not only because we cannot explain them with our models at the moment, but also because it seems a bit more reasonable and it will start to build a path for getting the very massive black holes that we see in the center of the galaxies. Exactly. Although you define it at the beginning, and I also mentioned a bit about the supermassive black holes, just for being clear for everybody, there are the three big categories about black holes. In one end, you have the stellar black holes. It's like this, has some few tense solar masses top. Mm -hmm. Then you have the intermediate mass black holes that are between the hundred and, well, depending how you define that, but some few hundred still, the hundred thousand. So it's intermediate, let's say that way, mm -hmm. because the supermassive black holes usually starts at around the million solar masses and yes. some few. Yeah, billion solar masses even in the in the center oh, yeah. of the largest galaxies. And, and we already mentioned that, I think, in some other episode, there is a very strong correlation between the mass of a galaxy and the mass of the supermassive black hole in the center. But we still don't understand well how these supermassive black holes were created. Mm. This uh, merging and fusion of black holes creating from the small to big ones might be one path. Some people, some cosmologists still might consider that they were original primordial black holes that were created during the Big Bang. And that was what moved into creating the supermassive black holes that we are now seeing in galaxies. So it's still... So many questions, yeah, so still, little answers. Yeah, but definitely that is an amazing result that is moving forward our uh, knowledge in all this issue. Indeed, it was very, very cool when it came out. I think it was one of those it, I think this one was really one of those big discoveries that people were like talking about a few days beforehand but not talking about it you know yeah. just like little yeah, little yeah, whispers yeah. happening here and there well with with LIGO that had happened all the time mm. even the very first detections that we were or nowhere and and the super and the um the neutron the, star neutron star and, merger and the, kil the kilonova was also well, the kilonova, the, the, I don't know, I don't remember on top of my head how many astronomers were involved, but I think that oh, at the end, big list. Uh, at the end, it was around the thousand astronomers around the yep. world. 
that knew it in advance because they have been told, hey, look at this position in the sky because that's... Point your telescopes, friends. Find what it is. doesn't matter if it's an optical telescope near infrared, your satellite, radio telescope. Just go, telescopes. Go, 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 go there. So it is really difficult to keep a secret with this yes. collaboration. <laughs> And honestly, like that 2020 was really the year to show that scientists are really bad at keeping secrets, especially with the phosphine on Venus conversation. Oh, well, you are just moving there directly because that was my next point. Master of segues. <laughs> yeah, we have not planned this, believe us. <laughs> For me, I would say that uh, the issue of the what had happened during uh, September, October, and even November, about the detection of something gas in Venus is having a study case for universities and for science communicators and for everyone for getting a better understanding of how science really works. Mm. Um, let's give a bit of background. In, on the 14th of September, 2020, Grips and collaborators, Jane Grips and collaborators, published a paper in Nature Astronomy called Phosphine Gas in the Clouds Decks of Venus. Yes. And with ALMA observation, observation using the Atacama Large Millimetric uh, Submillimetric Array, the network of the interferometer that is located five kilometers high in the, in the Chilean Andes in the Atacama mm -hmm. Desert, they were able to detect a very peculiar absorption feature in the spectrum observing radio frequencies that is uh, associated with pH3, which is phosphine gas. Yes. And was quite big. So it was not possible to explain this feature uh, with a standard phenomena that we think we, we know or we knew about the clouds in Venus. Exactly. So that triggered all the alarm. Because that gas, that, uh, that uh, substance, that molecule on the Earth have been associated to biological life. Exactly. So life. So it's associated to life. Could that be that that excess of the amount of phosphine that we are seeing, claiming with these authors in the paper, could be that related to that there is some way of observing, or there is some kind of life in the clouds of Venus? Have we looking in the wrong planet in the step of Mars <laughs> should have gone to Venus? Suddenly which... when there are like three different Mars rovers going to Mars, suddenly, oh wait, look at Venus guys. Something's which... happening over there. Which is interesting because at the very beginning of the space exploration, Venus was the main object to observe trying to find life. Sister Earth. Sister Earth, just a different atmosphere, but the atmosphere perhaps is just six clouds of water because it is what we have on Earth, water. Yeah, of course. Uh, and suddenly when you send a probe there, it melts. <laughs> no, no, because the atmosphere in Venus, it is just very, very different to the atmosphere that we have on Earth. Um, we have already talked about Venus in some few uh, other moments. The clouds in Venus are not water, are sulfuric acid, basic, and plenty of CO2. And that makes a crazy greenhouse effect on the surface of the planet, making that all around the planet, doesn't matter if it is daylight or night, the temperature in the surface, it is around 
464 degrees Celsius, which is enough for melting zinc and some few of these elements. And also the pressure, because the pressure, it is around 90 times, sorry, 90, this is 90, yeah, 90, 90. 90 times the pressure that we have in, in, in the, in the, in here in the, in the surface of the earth. It is very different what we have there. However, and that was something that uh, it was already suggested by Carl Sagan and uh, one a collaborator, uh, Morowitz, in 1967, if you draw the evolution of the distribution of the temperature from the surface of Venus going up into the clouds, from the, those 464 degrees, more or less, in the surface, you get around 50 kilometers high, 50, 55, 60 kilometers high in, in the troposphere, when you get the 20, sweet 20, 25 degrees Celsius. Not too bad. A so bit, bit is, cooler than it is here today. Perhaps imagine that would have been able to evolve any kind of life in those conditions. That is all the issue. And of course, considering also what was happening and what had been happening during the year with all the craziness with the global pandemic, having this kind of big news, it was all over the, over the news. It was over it was the media. Everywhere. It was absolutely everywhere. It was first thing that many important media outlets, including newspapers, I think it was in the first page of the New York Times. It was in the, in, in the very first opening on many uh, important TV news uh, because it was something that people were really, really wanted to have good news, something interesting coming from scientists. It was quite good. But what is happening in science? In science, we do not take things for granted. We do experiment. We like to test and to contrast and to double check that everything that we are doing is correct. And this data were archived data in some way. So some, many other astronomers could go to the database in ALMA, download the data and reanalyze the data. I have to say that they didn't, um, in this original paper by uh, Jane Greaves and collaborator, they also used the James Clark Maxwell Telescope for detecting this feature. Actually, it was because it was a tentative detection of kind of detection using mm. the, this, uh, this radio telescope that is located in Hawaii. The reason why they were awarded the time to observe with, with ALMA. They got the time with ALMA. However, just in some few weeks, actually just in two, three weeks, on the 21st of October, we started to have papers coming from different people that have reanalyzed the same signal and they couldn't find anything. They couldn't. It got so spicy. Oh, it was just so it crazy. Very, very spicy science time for like a month and a half. Plenty of conversations in social media and in Twitter, uh, plenty of hard discussions. Of course, unfortunately, this was not taken that much by the general media, mm. but for science communicators or people who have been following and astronomers, of course, following this, it has been quite, uh, quite interesting. That was uh, particularly the Snellen paper published, uh, that was in archive, so it was not even submitted yet to, to, to the paper, to the, uh, a journal on the 21st of October. Reanalyzing of the 267 gigahertz ALMA observation of Venus, no statistical significant detection of something. Yes, 
Not to mention that the very last line in the abstract, uh, they call for uh, the Greaves team to retract their statement, which was at the time when it first happened was very spicy. Yes, because it's, yes. it's 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 a very it's a very lucrative thing to say, especially in an abstract of a paper, not even uh, at the end in the conclusions. But apparently, they had to put that there because that was part of. Of the kind the, of paper the process, yeah, the and the kind, kind of paper, paper that, that they were using, exactly. And in that moment, it was with this paper when um, some people realized that the data, the original data, the, the, the process data, let's see that better that way, that Alma have produced, uh, were not that good enough. There were some issues mm. there, and mm. even on top of that, the, in the original paper by Greaves. Uh, they have tried to do the fitting of what we call the continuum, trying to estimate, okay, what is the level that if we don't have any features in, in, in an spectrum, where is that signal? Try to fit that, and they used a relatively high-order polynomial for doing that, that was increasing a lot the amount of signal that you were getting. Ah. And that was also quite a controversy into the community because for this, if we, you see the data, I would have never applied, uh, I think that was a 12-4, yeah, a 12 polynomial for fitting that. I, I, mm. I, try, I try the continuum, you try to do it as easier that possible. Just sometimes even just a single, a single linear fit, nothing yeah. else, single linear fit. Uh, sometimes you can push it a bit to a third order, but don't go further than that. Don't go too far. <laughs> uh, unless you have some models and if you have a model, you can try to model it with some few extra parameters, whatever. But that was not the case. That was just a trying to fit a continuum with a 12 order polynomial mm. and, and, and was quite uh, uh, disputed all of that. So there were some few papers coming here and there, another coming from Jerónimo Villanueva, 2012, 27th of October, Thompson, 28th of October. So that was evident, uh, was quite clear in the community that um, perhaps that optimism approach of, hey, there is there might be life in Venus, that much. Wait. But even then, when in the original presentation that the Greaves team gave for the press release for Nature, is they had on a slide, we are not claiming aliens, or not, not verbatim, but basically the that you know general statement of we are not claiming that there is actually life on Venus. We mm -hmm. have this signature, we can't explain it in any other known way. It might be an unknown chemical or geological process that we just like I said, don't yeah. know about, but and at no point did they say aliens. And that is a very important point because indeed they said that and they mm. said that in the presentation, said that in the paper, and I'm going to quote here from mm -hmm. the uh, conclusions of the paper, even if confirmed, we emphasize that the detection of the pH3 is not robust evidence for life, only for anomalous and explained chemistry. Exactly. So from the very beginning, they were saying there is something we're here. We have found the signal. Uh, since it is there, it is much more. Um, it is much, 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 much more amount of um, uh, phosphine that what we could explain with the models that we have now. But that it is, and and I'm going to say that again. 
on Earth, a lot of this material, the pH3, the phosphine, is related to life. But we have found phosphine in many other places in the cosmos. Mm -hmm. and like in we, Jupiter. Like in Jupiter, in Saturn, in comets, in interstellar clouds, in nebula. We are finding, because it is a very easy molecule, it is a, a phosphorus. Very easy signal to find. Phosphorus and three hydrogens. It's, easy for the chemistry to get that. Mm. So it doesn't have to be related to existence of life. But all of this gave me a very good excuse to think about how we science communicators and scientists in general transmit the scientific method to the general public. Mm. Because we have been seeing this kind of the debate. We have seen the debate of the phosphine in Venus in almost real life as it was happening and people writing papers. And that is exactly what had happened in 2020 with all the pandemic, with exactly. all the knowledge of the COVID-19, uh, the, the virus. And um, the, the, the virus is uh, SARS-CoV-2. And, 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 and it is an excellent example of how we still have to try our best for communicating effectively what is science, how we are debating continuously different hypotheses and testing those hypotheses, trying to refine our models with the observation and with the data that we are getting. We are rejecting the hypotheses that are not working mm -hmm. and building on those that follow the data. And that is a very important part of how science works. And sometimes it, it takes not only one, not only two, not only three, sometimes even some few decades to get uh, the results and the consensus of the, of the scientific community and say, well, if we know this for almost, almost sure. Remember, in science, we can never say 100% sure something. Exactly. And, and that's, that's the, one of the uh, challenges that I've faced this year with communicating science on TikTok and on these, on these very large platforms where you have people from all walks of life seeing your content, is that a lot of, whenever I say something about an uncertainty with a measurement, which we have uncertainties on every single measurement we make in science because like you said we can never be 100% sure there's always going to be some form of error some some form of uncertainty and uh, as soon as people see the word or hear the word uncertainty they're like oh you don't know anything it's like no 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 we, we, we know to this level we have a pretty good idea about what's going on we have these models and and that's it our our understanding of the world around us and the universe around us is evolving Mm -hmm, That's exactly. what science is. It's the evolution of knowledge. Yes, and as part of human culture too. And you mentioned something that is important. I have also tried to say the word hypothesis and not theory that mm. sometimes is very much confused. I slip up and, with that too. And you have mentioned uncertainties, not errors. Yes. Because errors for some, we many times, ah, we have this measure, uh, this study is of uh, 25 uh, light years with an error of two or three light years. Well, that is a very good precision. 10 light years of, of error. Yeah. Ah, the error, the error, what is the error? No, it is the uncertainty. It is the, right. We know that it is around that distance, but because of the limitations of our instruments, of the, the data that we have, we cannot be sure if it is a bit more, a bit 
closer, a bit, a bit more distant, a bit closer to R. So we have to give a bracket of distance. So this is the way we do that. Sometimes these uncertainties are even, well, uh, that uh, object, it is at uh, 25 plus five minus three light years, because we are able to account in the, independently how close or far you are from that uh, middle point. Exactly. That is, that is also why uh, um, understanding statistics is becoming more and more important at the moment. Indeed. Okay, well. That's that, a big story to digest, isn't that, it? <laughs> that is a big story to digest. Do you want to tell another, another of yours? I do have another one and it's, a, it's another one about a planet, maybe. Uh, and it kind of flew under the radar, I think, personally. I didn't. I don't remember seeing much about it uh, online other than from what when I read the paper and when I made something and a couple other people in the field making these uh, posts about this. But we have, and as usual, we have a very, very uh, catchy name. We have M51-ULS-1B. It is the first candidate for a planet in an external galaxy yeah 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 that was also an interesting another news interesting to one too. Yeah. yes so today we found and confirmed the existence of over 4,000 exoplanets orbiting around stars within our own galaxy but we've never found one in another galaxy before because you know they're, they're very very far away and so it, it's difficult enough as it is in our own galaxy let alone things that are millions of light years away so this potential candidate which is not confirmed yet Okay, he's still and just a candidate. Important. Yes. Uh, it's in the Whirlpool Galaxy, a very pretty galaxy imaged by Hubble many, many times, which is about 28 million light years away. If it is a planet, it's about the size of Saturn and orbits around a very interesting system. It orbits around a binary system that consists of a massive star and either a neutron star or a black hole. Whoa. <laughs> mm, very, very interesting system there. Uh, and it was discovered using X-rays. So the same radiation that lets you see your bones. And uh, one of the biggest questions uh, that I got when making this and, and talking about this is how can we see a planet using X-rays? And it's just the same as we see planets using optical light as well, the light that we can actually see with our eyes. It's looking for a dip in, in the light, in the, uh, in the intensity of light that we get from this particular star or neutron star or black hole. So they weren't actually looking for a planet. It just happened to be a serendipitous potential detection of a candidate planet in another galaxy. Because there's yeah. this, in the data that you look at, you have this x-ray continuum and there's this very symmetrical dip in that spectra which or in that time series of of energy and of light of x-ray light and uh it being so symmetrical is, is what is leading them to think oh maybe this is a planet and and you said that it was discovered without looking for it as many times that thing, those things happen in also in astronomy and in science in general no? and serendipitous finding Exactly. Yeah, and around a very interesting system. And it makes me think about how now we are able to combine different data facilities, X-rays and uh, optical radio. And with all of that, 
in a galaxy that is uh, 25, 28 million light years away, like the Whirlpool, being able to say, well, this feature that we are seeing here, the best explanation we have for this, it is a massive star, pulsar, neutron star, black hole. So it is a double star, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, there is a massive planet, massive in the size of Saturn, there, perhaps with more planets, who knows? But it just with only that signal, I, I think it is amazing. It is just it amazing is. that we are able to get to this. It's so impressive. It's just, and so impressive whilst being like, oh, cool, maybe we found something <laughs> <laughs> without actually actively looking. So that, and that's what's really cool, like you said, about astronomy that. I won't say a lot of things are serendipitous, but there are quite a few things that are quite serendipitous. Like, I think it was in 2019, there's the serendipitous discovery of a hypervelocity star that had, it, it led to a very funny conversation in the astronomy department at UNSW because every Thursday we have Astro Coffee. This is a very important point in this in this story here. Every Thursday we have Astro Coffee at the at the lunch table, which is right by my desk. So I'm hidden enough that I can't see anyone, but I can hear people talking about whatever they're talking about during Astro Coffee. And on this particular morning for Astro Coffee, they're talking about this popular science article that uses the word yeet in the article and in the title of the article. And those who have been keeping up with my TikToks, you know that I love to use the word yeet as often as I can. So, and a lot of astronomy departments are quite often filled with older men who, and of the older generation as well, of of women too, that uh, don't necessarily understand the, uh, the hip young words that the young people are saying these days. And so they're discussing like, what, what is this? They're trying to think about, okay, they're talking about this paper, this hypervelocity star, they use the word yeet. How does this work? What does yeet mean? And I've just turned around in my desk here in this conversation, just kind of giggling to myself. And I said, um, let me just jump in here as the certified young person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is what yeet means. And so it was very funny hearing about that. Uh, I now have lost my train of thought of where we were, but uh, yeet. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you were just talking about serendipitous uh, discoveries. That's for, right, And that yes. was one of one. And that of was those. one of those serendipitous discoveries with the do, uh, hypervelocity star that goes yeet. Do you know also how we are going to get many serendipitous uh, discoveries using the ASCAP? Yes, ah, master of segues. <laughs> so let me tell you about this other, for me, kind of uh, big news of, of 2020. Although it have been, I have not have been here in Australia, because that was just uh, published uh, some few weeks ago. I'm trying to find the date, but it was not uh, just at the beginning of December, late November at, at, at latest. The first paper about the rapid ASCAP Continuum Survey. And it might, the title might seem a bit of what it is. Well, we have talked already a bit about the ASCAP radio interferometer, which is mm-hmm. a complex of 36 antennas in, the, in Western Australia. Each antenna has a 12 meter diameter, and that is the, the ASCAP. And uh, they are doing radio interferometry for observing even all the sky in the same day. They have a very large field of view. And that is because 
in the focus of each antenna, we have developed this new technology that is called the phased array feed, the PATH, that is a kind of um, chessboard for being able to provide to each antenna in a step of observing just a pixel, a direction in the sky, as we usually do with, uh, with, uh, with radio astronomy, mm -hmm. kind of a CCD camera, very Ooh. first approach. It is kind of, kind of, it is not that, but it is a kind of for understanding easy. Well, the thing it is that with all these 36 dual polarization beams, we have six by six, then it is possible to achieve a field of view of 5.5 by 5.5 degrees in the sky. That's 10 full moons by 10 full moons. 11 by 11. Ele oh. 11 by 11. That's so many. So just with one pointing, you are getting the equivalent of 11 by 11 full moons in the sky. <laughs> That's really, really, really amazing. This paper, what is providing it is the very first large survey conducted with ASCAP that is called the Rapid ASCAP Continuum Survey, the RACS, mm -hmm. because what they have been doing it is they are taking a snapshot only 15 minutes exposures in 903 positions of the sky, covering all the southern sky and all the northern sky till declination plus 51. That that's, is, pretty, that's pretty low. That is equivalent to 83% of the sky. Whoa! How much time had Atka needed for completing this? Can I answer this? Because I know this answer and it's so, so cool. You can answer, yes. 300 hours. 10 days. Yes, 10 days. Ten days. So, so ASCAP wow. in 10 days obtained a map, a radio map of all the sky, detecting around three, three million, three million galaxies. Three million galaxies, many of them were already well known. But one million of those galaxies, one million of those three million galaxies, one third of this entire survey are completely new galaxies that have not been observed before. Exactly, because even only with these 15 minutes, ASCAP is going deeper than the previous surveys. And there's some comparison, for example, with the Sydney's University Monglonglo Sky Survey that uh, needed a decade to observe 25% of the sky. <laughs> and it, it was completed in 2006. The map that we have now with ASCAP, the RACS maps, are even deeper than those, much deeper than the other radio surveys that we have been using for decades, obtained with the VLA, for example. Mm. So it's just amazing. And that is just the very beginning of ASCAP life in that way. Imagine that we are going to start now also in the time of the large surveys, in this large observation of the big patch of the sky, getting everything. and we are going to be re-observing the same field just in some few days. Mm. So that is why it is a, a something that is very exciting for many astronomers that we are entering into the time domain because we are going to get a snapshot of all the sky in every some few days. We can stack all those data together and get a very deep image of the universe in radio frequencies. And again, the majority of the points that we are seeing in these images, although they are point-like, they are not stars, 
yeah, they are galaxies, galaxies. Galaxies and of then even billions of light years away. Also, supernova remnant and so on. But the point is that when you put all those in a sequence and you get a time-lapse movie, you can get a time-lapse or you can process them in some way that you detect those objects that are changing the brightness with time. Mm, and we and, all know you love your time lapses, Angel. Yeah, no, but, but I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but <laughs> thank even you radio, radio time but lapses. But in radio time lapses, that is going to be very cool in the sense of we are going to discover new kind of objects, and that is what is coming the serendipia that we were explaining before, the fast ray bursts, that another kind of serendipity uh, discovery, let's say, in that way. And now we are moving into this kind of time domain astronomy, combining also data with optical and radio, gamma and X-rays, and even sometimes the gravitational waves. So mm. we are really moving into amazing times in astronomy. I don't want to forget the first author of, uh, at least mentioning the first author of the paper, David McNollan from the CSIRO. I know I will say 80, 85% of the people in the paper because they are the large collaboration building the ASCAP um, and also developing the techniques and the tools for producing, analyzing and getting the, the most of all the information that this amazing machine, the Australian SKA Pathfinder, is starting to produce. It's crazy. There's just so much so much so much data oh also that's actually a thing to mention as well the amount of raw data that was generated for this survey done in just 10 days was 13 point something exabytes mm -hmm. where one exabyte is one million terabytes that is terrifying <laughs> it is just yeah. A lot of data. Um, I try to find and remember exactly the proportion, but I think some, I, I cannot, I'm not daring to say without having the number written here, but it was something like all the internet traffic that Australia mm. have had in, in one year. It is what the ASCAP will get in one day or something wow. like that. <laughs> Whether this, that's this, the exact number or not, like it's still just a mind-blowing statistic. It, exactly. It's just these numbers are so big that are completely breaking our our way of how we are going to deal with that. And, and that has been also another issue with this um, machine with, uh, with with ASCAP, because it will not be possible to keep the raw data. Mm. because we don't have enough storage for it's those raw data. Much. It is too much. The cloud and, is full, people. <laughs> and that is also why there have been that much investment in developing these techniques, this tool, these data processing pipelines for getting the best that later you are going to get only your reviews really to analyze data, but not what it was before. So we have to be sure that we are getting as uh, the best data as possible. Mm. Wow, what a year 2020 has been. Is there anything more? I think I, I think that's it's, that's all the big things that we had this year. There's just so, so much. Yeah, I have another thing, but I'm going to keep it for the next episode because I have seen another series of papers related to this coming Ooh. today. And I think it is amazing. This, um, oh, it is really, and so I'm going to. It's a teaser uh, for a next tease, time. A teaser for the next one, because believe me, for me, that thing is still coming in 2020, will be one of the top 
discoveries in astronomy that uh, we have had this year. Oh, I'm excited. Yeah, well, we have to wait for the next episode. We'll just have to wait. <laughs> so as usual, I know it's been a long while, but you can always send us questions at The Scientists on Twitter. We're on Facebook too. Uh, you can send us an email. And I know I've only had a couple of uh, special guests, but don't forget you can also send us an audio clipping of you asking a question too. Oh, you can hear awesome. your own voice that... on The Scientists. That will be awesome. We have only had a couple of those and it would be great to have a bit more. Indeed. So until next time, we'll see you when the 2020s actually start. <laughs> <laughs> that is the point. So all the best for the holiday season and please enjoy the sky. All the best also for 2021. Stay safe. Yes. Stay safe. And see you very soon. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.